Good morning, everyone. Our scripture reading this morning can be found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. And that can be found uh, in the Pew Bible on page 831. And the scripture reading this morning goes along with our sermon series, Joy in Selfless Living. Give you a moment to get there. Chapter 2, starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Verse 25, But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphrodites, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because... You heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, uh, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 28. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad that I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy. And honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Thank you, George. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as we come around his word this morning. Lord, if we did not believe that what we hold in our hands has been breathed out by you and it's the authoritative word from your mouth, then there's really no purpose in being here this morning. Nothing I'm going to say is about uh, providing some inspiration apart from what you say in your word, what you have communicated to us, what you wanted to be here, right here in this passage so that we could unpack it for our lives and we could apply it to how we live for you. So God, it's not about listening to me this morning. It's about listening to you. Help us to listen to you and say, speak. For thy servant is listening. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. True story is told of a woman who was driving through the mountains west of Denver when she ran into a snowstorm and she was completely lost. 
She then noticed ahead of her a four-wheel drive pickup with a blade on the front of it. And since she was lost and the snowstorm was getting worse, she decided to follow the truck and try and stay as close to him as she could while he removed the snow from the road. And so she lined herself up behind him, and at times as she followed him, the blowing snow almost blinded her view, but she kept following the truck. The truck would go up the hill and get to the top and make this sort of U-turn and then go back down the hill. But she faithfully kept watching the truck and, and following the truck. After about the third time that the truck went up and then down the hill, the truck stopped. And its driver got out of the truck and walked over to the woman in the car. And he said, lady, what on earth are you doing and where are you going, he asked. She answered, I'm on my way to Denver. And the truck driver replied, well, you'll never get there following me. I'm just plowing my driveway. (laughs) It matters whom you follow. It matters whom you follow. Like the bumper sticker that says, don't follow me, I'm lost. It matters whom we follow. Whom are you following? Each of us has a catalog of people we admire. We read about them, we watch them, we might even mimic them. Because those we admire, we watch, and those we watch, we are often influenced by and may even conform to. It matters whom we follow. One writer so insightfully put it, five years from now, five years from now, you'll be pretty much the same as you are today, except for two things, the books you read and the people you get close to. It's the second part of that which has our attention this morning. It's safe to say that you will eventually become like those you admire, study, watch, and spend time with. The question is, are they worth watching? Are they worth following? We come to a section of Scripture this morning that at first pass, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot there. You might wonder how these verses in Philippians 2 that that George just read, how these verses here could speak to, to Christian living as we work out our salvation as we saw last week. I mean, no one's favorite verse is found in this passage of Scripture. I have yet to hear anyone say, a verse that has been meaningful to me in my Christian walk has been Philippians 2.19 or Philippians 2.22. I mean, how can the mention of, two, of travel plans of two guys be meaningful and relevant to our personal lives? Well, I want to take you back, a very brief review here of where we've been in our time in Philippians. Paul, the writer of this book, is in Rome under house arrest awaiting a trial. The church in Philippi that Paul founded is concerned for Paul, not knowing whether he will live or whether he will die as a martyr. And so he writes this letter to them to encourage them and to call them to choose joy. That's our theme, choose joy. And Paul is a bright example of one who could choose joy even in the midst of worse circumstances. We find these words at the end of the section we read last week. You can look at that, chapter 2. 
verses 17 and 18, just prior to what was read. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, this is Paul speaking, but even I, if I am being poured out like a drink offering and the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. See, Paul's joy just pouring out here. And Paul is a life worth watching, a life worth following. He chose joy. And he lived a selfless life. He lived a sacrificial life. That's the pathway to joy. Paul then presents to us two compelling living illustrations of what he's been talking about. Well, what has he been talking about just in the last couple of weeks as we've looked at it? That joy is found in selfless living. That joy is found in sacrificial living. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of a downward journey of one who had everything but made himself nothing. Jesus descended, decreased, and downscaled that he might accomplish the purpose of God, namely, namely, to demonstrate his love by taking our place on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. And as we have seen, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Just as Jesus chose to go down all the way to giving himself away for the benefit of others, we too are expected to do the same. Philippians 2 verse 5. As Christ was obedient to the point of death, therefore, Paul said, work out what God works in with fear and trembling, as we saw last week. And if anyone was in doubt as to what that working out looked like, Paul says, do everything without complaining or arguing. How do we do this past week? A chuckle tells me something. I could do the same. And the main reason, you recall that he gives for a non-complaining life is so that we shine like stars in a dark world. It's dark out there. We can't whine and shine at the same time. That's where we left off last week. Now, if you're writing this letter and you had an example or two of, of what you've been talking about, this would be an appropriate time to mention them. It's as if Paul at this point says, in case you wonder how such exhortations are to be lived out, here are two compelling illustrations of what it looks like. Here are two guys who are examples of the exhortations given over the last two chapters. Whom should we follow? Which Christians should be our models? Meet Timothy. Meet Epaphroditus. Two guys worth watching. Two guys worth following. And what we can learn from them is this. Selflessly and sacrificially pouring out our lives for the sake of others is the pathway to joy. That's the bottom line for this morning. Selflessly and sacrificially pouring out our lives for the sake of others is the pathway to joy. And we're going to see an example of selfless living and an example of sacrificial living in Timothy and then Epaphroditus. First, there's Timothy, 
as Paul speaks about in verses 19 through 24. And the overall thought here is, and that's what I want to give you, we're not going to unpack every single verse on this. You're going to have to cut me a little slack on that. We're going to kind of do some broad strokes here. But read the passage. Make sure it's coming out of here, of course. But here's the overall thought as it relates to Timothy. Timothy displays and demonstrates genuine concern for the welfare of others. Timothy displays and demonstrates genuine concern for the welfare of others. He is selfless. Now, what do we know of Timothy? Well, Paul mentions him uh, at least 20 times throughout his, his letters. Timothy was with Paul in Philippi when it all began. So he has a proven track record. Paul says that, matter of fact, in verse 22. Verse 22, but you know that Timothy has proven himself, has proven himself. The thought here is of proof after testing. It describes proven character or tested value. So he's no stranger to the church in Philippi. They had benefited from Timothy's faithful service. Now, what was it that set Timothy apart? That's what I want to look at. What was it that set Timothy apart? What was it that made Timothy worth watching and worth following? Verse 20. Verse 20. Paul says, I have no one else like him. I have no one else like him. In what way? He goes on. Who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. I have no one like him. Who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. We saw back in chapter 1 that there were those who were seeking their own interests, even in their preaching the right gospel. In chapter 2, we saw the charge to the church to not only look at your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but the last few weeks, at 925, there's a verse, two verses going up on that screen about others. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. I don't know about you, I need to get that ingrained in my head. I haven't made it yet. Still need to get it ingrained in my head. There are many who seek their own interests, not Timothy. He was genuinely concerned about others. Whom are you watching? Whom are you following? Someone like Timothy? See, Timothy, like people, are not too difficult to identify. Timothy, like people, give you their full attention. They really listen. Timothy, like people, are not always interrupting when you're speaking. Timothy, like people, are not about competitive talking. Do you know what I mean by that, competitive talking? I find myself doing this more than I care to admit. It is when I am hearing what you're saying and then relay my own personal situation so that somehow I come out ahead of you. You ever do that? Is it just me? You ever do that? Good, you tell me what? Okay, now, now, good, thank you for telling me that. Now let me share something of my life, and you know, mine's a little worse. Or maybe I did something a little better. That's competitive talking. Timothy-like people aren't like that. They're about your welfare. They're people who take a genuine interest in your life. People who ask, how is it with your soul? How can I serve you? Timothy-like people take initiative in order to serve others. They don't just say, let me know if I can do something for you. They jump in and do it. 
Timothy-like people ask thoughtful questions which allow them to hear the real needs. They look to serve others according to their needs rather than this one-size-fits-all kind of serving. Timothy, like people who have a genuine interest in the welfare of others, look to grow and change because they know in doing so, others benefit. They're not content to stay where they're at. They don't just stay there and then, and then put it on you to accept them as they are. Like the boy who had been sent to his room because of his persistent bad behavior and, and to go and to think about what he had done. So the mom later visited her son in his room and he, and, he, and, and he said to her right off, he says, Mom, I've been thinking about what I did and I even said a prayer. That's great, the mom replied. If you ask God to help you change, he will help you. Oh, I didn't ask him to help me be good, replied the boy. I asked him to help you put up with me. <laughs> That's usually how it is. I don't plan to change, so you just need to adapt. Since you can put up with my insensitive remarks, after all, that's just the way I am. Put up with me. Put up with me. It's on you. It's wrong. That's wrong. I need to change. I can't just say it's the way I am. It's not biblical. It's not Christ-like. See, Timothy-like people who are genuinely concerned for the welfare of others won't put it on you and ask God just to help you put up with them. They'll ask God to help them be better to serve you. Are we thinking that way? God, help me better serve others. Meet Timothy. He's genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. Next, we're going to meet Epaphroditus. But before we do, let's pause to do a little reflection here. Let me ask you this question. How would others describe you? How would those closest to you describe you if they were writing to others? Would it be said of you, I have no one else like him. I have no one else like her who takes a genuine interest in the welfare of others. Can it be said of you? Can it be said of me who takes a genuine interest in the welfare of others? You say, no, I don't want to do that. If I do that, I open up a can of worms, and it really gets messy. I don't want to ask how people are really doing. They might actually tell me, and then I'm going to have to do something with it, and I don't really want to get that involved, right? It's resonating at all. I mean, I know getting involved in people's lives is messy, but loved ones, people are our business. They're our business. They're our mission. An Englishman was hired to drive a city bus. And on his first day, he managed to complete his route and return to the bus depot at the prescribed time, but without any passengers. When his manager asked him why he didn't have any passengers, he admitted, I never stopped to pick them up. (laughs) And why didn't you stop to pick them up, inquired the angry manager. Because if I did, said the rookie bus driver, I would have fallen behind in my schedule. (laughs) That's what it feels like. Ministry is about people, not tasks, not schedules. I understand boundaries. I understand we have to have those in place. But ministry is about people. We must never focus more on the work than on the people who are coming. We must never love our work or our ministry more than the people. Well, you say, how can I move towards being more Timothy-like? 
Well, begin with letting your heart be touched over others' needs. And let your heart not only be touched by others' needs with compassion, but, but, but be able, if you, if you can, you're able to meet it, let it go with, put action to it. To be Timothy-like, it means I must resist my natural longing to influence others to minister to me. It means I am to be more concerned about what I can give to others rather than what others can do for me. It means to be a giver, not a taker. A giver, not a taker. You know, there are modern-day Timothys right here in this church who look after the welfare of others over their own needs. Those who take the time after an event to clean up a little for the next group that might be coming in. That's looking out for others over yourself. Because who doesn't want to go home right then? There are those who quietly and faithfully get things ready so that we can enjoy fellowship in the ark. There are those who, who roll up their sleeves and, and help out a widow in the church. There are those who spend hours cleaning up a basement. Those who, who care enough to listen to a fearful saint. Those who care enough even to confront. Yes, right here in this church, there are those who care enough to drop what they're doing, to write a note, to take a phone call, to stop by, to send a text, to to surprise you with a cup of coffee or something else. There are those who give of their precious time to serve on a committee, in a ministry, or to be a friend. Let's find ways to display and demonstrate genuine concern for others. The opportunities are endless. Let's watch and follow those who are Timothy-like. You really should be able to spot them. Because you know why they're so easy to identify more than anything else? Is that it's because they're joyful people. They're joyful people. There is joy and selfless living. Well, let's meet Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. No one names their kid Epaphroditus today for some reason. Paul speaks of him in verses 25 through 30. What is it that stands out in this living illustration more than anything else? What is, it, what is the overall thought as it relates to Epaphroditus? It is this. He displays and demonstrates sacrifice for the cause of Christ. He displays and demonstrates sacrifice for the cause of Christ. He lived sacrificially. Now, here's the situation with Epaphroditus. He was part of the church in Philippi. And when the church got word that Paul was in prison, they sent Epaphroditus to go and bring a financial gift to help Paul. He was chosen to go, not because the church couldn't wait to get rid of him. You don't want those kind of people. Please take them. We don't want them. It wasn't, that wasn't the reason. It's because he had a proven faithfulness. He would not have been chosen to bring a financial gift unless the church trusted him. And along with bringing this gift, he was to be of help to Paul and to minister to Paul. That he was, for Paul speaks well of him, referring to him as a fellow brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier. So Epaphroditus arrives with a gift. He, He serves Paul for a time, and while he's there, he becomes very, very sick. The church really didn't know how ill he was until Paul would uh, send him back later. But nonetheless, it was a double blow for the church, which not only felt the loss of Paul, but now would carry this extra weight of the man they sent to minister to Paul, which didn't turn out as they figured, as they planned. Some might even thought, 
what a dud. Why did we send Epaphroditus? Goes there and he gets sick. He's supposed to help Paul, and Paul's probably now ministering to him. Whatever might be going through their minds back home, news of this illness got back to them somehow, and this bothers Epaphroditus. Verse 26, for he longs for all of you, and he's distressed because he, you heard he was ill. He's concerned because the people are concerned. The word distressed there, by the way, is the same word used of Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and troubled in spirit. Troubled in spirit. It's to be full of heaviness. It's to, be, it's to have an anguish of soul. Epaphroditus is so selfless that he's deeply troubled because he knows the heartache, the news of sickness is causing the church. He loved the church that much. And it's, always the, it's often the opposite with us. We're troubled because we feel as though people aren't concerned enough. No one cares about me. No one called. I wish people could feel my pain. Not Epaphroditus. He didn't want to be the center of attention back home. He didn't want them worrying about him. So Paul, considering their needs over his own, sends Epaphroditus back to the church once he recovered from his serious illness, for God had mercy on him. That's the only explanation that Epaphroditus recovers from this illness. God had mercy on him, verse 27. And so Epaphroditus returns to the church. And what was previously a double sorrow is now a double joy, for they get Epaphroditus back, and with him is this letter from Paul. And I find it interesting what Paul says in verse 29. That's where I want to draw our attention. Verse 29, and then in minute 30. But verse 29, he says to the church, welcome him. Welcome him, Epaphroditus, in the Lord with great joy. There's our theme again. Welcome him. He tells them, he's coming back. He's coming with this letter. Welcome him. And I ask the question, why does Paul feel the need to tell them that? It is possible. It is possible that there might be some misunderstanding around Epaphroditus' return. The church sent him to minister to Paul, and he's already coming back. What's with that? Why are you here? You're supposed to be there. And just in case, just in case this church might have thought that Epaphroditus was a quitter, Paul has this to say about him. And folks, I love what Paul says here because he has Epaphroditus' back. We need to have each other's back. Sometimes we get drawn into what someone's already thinking about someone rather than going to bat for them and saying, you know what? Let me tell you about that servant. You may not know this about that servant. You may not know this person's heart. This is what I see of this person's heart. We need to have each other's back. Epaphroditus is sure that Paul has his back. He holds him up as one to be honored Why? He holds him up as one worth watching and worth following. He's a compelling illustration of one who did not live for himself, but for the cause of Christ. Because notice verse 30. Why honor? Why honor Epaphroditus? He says 29, welcome him in the Lord with great joy. Honor men like him. Honor them. 
They may not want the honor. They may say, oh, no, 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 no. Honor them anyway. Honor men like him. Why? Verse 30. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Now, that isn't a slam on the church, by the way. It's saying Epaphroditus did what they could not physically do, and that was to be there with Paul in a tangible way. You see, any time one of you does an act of kindness, it represents the church as a whole. Epaphroditus, in representing the church, did for Paul what they could not do. And he makes this very rough trip to Rome. And in the interest of ministry, he worked hard. He worked hard. Even when he was sick, he worked hard. And it about killed him. He almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life for the cause of Christ. You know what the word risk means? To gamble. To gamble. Oh, Christians don't gamble. Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? That's a mouthful. When is the last time we risked anything for Christ? When is the last time you said, if God isn't in this, I am going to fall flat on my face? Risk. That's how we progress. Someone said, behold the turtle who makes progress only when he sticks his neck out. (laughs) We need to stick our neck out. Oh, no, I can't do that. Everything's got to line up. It's noted by some historians that in the early church, there were groups of men and women who called themselves the parabolani, the parabolani, which is the word here for risking. They were called the riskers or gamblers. They were called the gamblers. No one's called me that. Oh, they were the ones that would minister to the sick and they would go and minister to the ones in prison. They took care of lepers and those infected with a plague. They loved the ones the rest of the world cast out and declared unclean. The riskers, the gamblers, did the job no one else wanted to do because it was too messy, too risky. These gamblers, these riskers, risked their own lives to meet the needs of others. And all too often, we ask, how great is the risk? Rather than, when do you need me? When do you need me? Are we like Epaphroditus who will reach out when we have nothing to gain and perhaps everything to lose? To what degree are we sacrificing for the work of Christ? Are we sacrificing for the gospel? I mean, if I watched your life this past week, where would it be evident that you are sacrificing for the good of others and for the cause of Christ? And if you watched my life this past week, what did I sacrifice? Where is it evident that we are sacrificing for the advancement of Christ? Where is it obvious that we are sacrificing for the building of his church? Are you willing to take the risk and reaching out in love for others? Because you know what? Love is risky. It is risky 
doesn't come with any guarantees. may not be reciprocated. You may get your heart ripped out. What's the alternative? Well, C.S. Lewis said it this way. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Then he says this. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Papaditis-like people don't prefer their own personal security over personal sacrifice. They say, I'll take the risk. Watch people like this. Study people like this. Read about people like this. Spend time with people like this. They're worth watching. They are worth following. Are you? Are you worth watching? Are you worth following? Am I? Are you saying I'm available to the Lord's service and to the Lord's people? Here I am. I'm available. Maybe you need to make that kind of commitment. Maybe it's been a while. Maybe you haven't made it at all, but maybe it's been a while since you reaffirmed your commitment of availability to the Lord. Maybe it goes back, way back. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did it. When I rededicated my life to the Lord, I think I was 18 then. Yeah, I remember that. It's been 20 years has passed. We haven't done it again. Maybe we reaffirm our commitment to say, I'm available to you, Lord. Whatever it is you want me to do, I will sacrifice, I will lay it down for you. I am totally available to the work of God, and I'm totally available to the people of God. I am totally available to the cause of Christ. I am totally available to the gospel. It reminds me of the quote, The world is yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And D.L. Moody added, and by God's help, I aim to be that man. Imagine with me the kind of impact it could have if 225 people in this room did that. By God's help, I aim to be that man, that woman, that young person. Here I am, Lord, ready to serve you rather than I have to serve here. I've served here. People who are truly living sacrificial lives don't even think of it as sacrifice. They serve with joy. There's joy in sacrificial living. There's joy in selfless living. Selflessly and sacrificially pouring out our lives for the sake of others is the pathway to joy. And before we just kind of chalk up or conclude that these two guys were uniquely gifted or they were uniquely exceptional or they had the right temperament for this or or they had the right personality, whatever else you may want to come up with to get yourself off the hook, listen, these two guys were ordinary men. They were no different than you and me. They were sinners who left to themselves, wanted their own way, and would look after their own interests and their own comforts. So how can we explain this? What is the only explanation for two such compelling examples? The only explanation 
for this kind of, of, of working out, this kind of selfless and sacrificial living, the only explanation is the effect of the gospel on their lives. And so rather than leave this morning and go, wow, what servants, we need to leave here with the explanation impressed upon our minds and our hearts. For what we have here is the effect of the transforming power of the gospel on two men's lives. We need to leave here saying, what a savior. What a savior. He came down to this earth. He made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. He became obedient to the point of death. Wow. Why? Because of his concern over the welfare of sinners. He did not look at his own interests, but to the interests of others. Wow, what a savior. Christ didn't just risk his life like Epaphroditus. He gave it. He gave up his life for us. That's the only explanation of the two examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. What a savior. And if we are to be like Timothy and Epaphroditus, it is to be rooted in the gospel. If we are to be a life worth watching, a life worth following, then the gospel must transform us. The thing about the gospel is the direction in which it points, is it not? The gospel is other-centered, right? Christ came from his place to our place to take our place so he could redeem us. Jesus was about your welfare. What's the response to that? live selflessly and sacrificially for him, all out. Be called riskers and gamblers for Christ. There was a six-year-old girl who became deathly ill with a dreadful disease. To survive, she needed a blood transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the same illness. The situation was complicated by her rare blood type. Her nine-year-old brother qualified as a donor, but everyone was kind of hesitant to ask him since he was so young. But finally, they agreed, let's go ask the nine-year-old boy, her brother. The doctor carefully and tactfully asked the boy if he was willing to be brave and to donate blood to his, for his sister. And though he didn't understand much about such things, the boy agreed without hesitation, sure, I'll give my blood for my sister. When the time came and the boy lay down beside his sister and he smiled at her as they pricked his arm with the needle. Then he closed his eyes and lay silently on the bed as the pint of blood was taken. Soon afterwards, the doctor came in to thank the young boy. And the boy, with quivering lips and tears running down his cheeks, asked, Doctor, so when do I die? I mean, will I start to die right away? At that moment, the doctor realized that the naive little boy thought that by giving his blood, he was giving up his life. So the doctor quickly reassured the boy that he wasn't going to die. But amazed at his courage, the doctor asked, why are you willing to risk your life for her? Because she's my sister, and I love her. She's my sister, and I love her. Epaphroditus, why are you willing to risk your life for Paul? He's my brother, and I love him. 
follower of Jesus Christ, why would you ever even consider risking your life for Christ? He's my Savior, and I love him. That's the only explanation. It's the only explanation. Let's live that way for God. Let's pray. God, may we leave here this morning not only impressed with these two men, but impressed with Jesus Christ and awe of him. That we leave proclaiming, what a Savior. Because he's my Savior, I love him. And because I love him, I will live selflessly and I will live sacrificially. Oh, God, may that be impressed upon our hearts. May the gospel transform us from the inside out. So we see that kind of living as the only way to live and to find tremendous joy in that. Use us to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.